0: Let's go right into meditation, please find a comfortable position. Step by step, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, and then calm the conceptually turbulent mind with mindfulness of breathing, choosing any method of your choice, but count one brief staccato count at the end of each inhalation, count 21 breaths without losing count. Now let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze soft, unfocused, resting in the space in front of you. And for just a brief time, Stay in this flow of mindful presence. Simply being aware in the present moment, but without (coughs) directing your attention to any object. Just resting. Clear, alert, still. Without being distracted outwards to any appearances, to any of the six sense fields. And without grasping onto (coughs) any subjective mental impulse loose and free. Now closely apply your mindfulness to this domain of the mind, one out of six domains of experience, without deliberately or voluntarily giving your attention to appearances arising in any of the other fields, any of the five sensory fields. Of course appearances arise, but do not attend to them, do not give any attention, take no interest Stay as single-pointedly focused as you can just on this one out of six domains of experience, the domain of the mind. And whatever movements there are, whatever appearances, whatever events take place within this one domain, Establish your baseline of observing, knowing the space of the mind, even when you cannot identify any activity within that space. And then observe whatever does arise within this domain of experience. Now examine closely whatever appears, whatever arises from moment to moment within this mental domain. Examine closely now where does it come from? Inspect the origin any thought, any image, appearance, memory, and so on. Examine with discerning intelligence So that after the session is over, if you are asked, what did you see? What did you discover? Where do your thoughts, images, and so forth, where do they come from? You'll be able to answer, this is what I saw. This is my experience. So examine now. Prepare to report, if called upon. While this is quite intense, very focused, see that your breathing flows effortlessly, unimpededly, gently, softly. And once a mental event has arisen, a thought, an image, a memory, whatever it may be, once it's there on the screen, has arisen in the domain, the so-called domain, examine closely where is it exactly. We say it's in the space of the mind, but that's just a phrase, a turn of speech. Where is it? In front of you, behind you, inside your head, inside your heart, inside the body, outside the body. Examine very closely what is the the location of any mental event that arises from moment to moment. And be prepared to report on what you discover. once a mental event has arisen of any kind sooner or later it fades out it's gone so where does it go when these thoughts and images depart do they go off stage to the left or the right do they vanish right where they are where do they go Examine closely and be prepared to report. What do you see? Not what you imagine, not what you think about. What do you observe? Now just rest, in utter simplicity. Well, also. If we were already living in the contemplative observatory up the hill and had a lot of time, then I, then I would drill you right now. <laughs> <laughs> we, I would examine you. I'd say, report, 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 and embarrass you. <laughs> But we don't have a contemplative observatory. We're here only for now five weeks. And so... So I turn that job over to Glenn. (laughs) So for those of you who have the good fortune to be meeting with him and drawing from his wisdom, he'll get to grill you on your experiences. Because if you don't know, who who knows? You You have the privileged access to your own minds. So if you don't know where your thoughts come from, if you don't know where they are, if you don't know where you're going... Then you have nobody else to ask. Don't wait for the seti to come up with some alien. Hello, alien. Hello, out there. Can you tell me where my thoughts come from? They won't be able to tell you. Oh, okay. so Now we're returning now to one, I think the word is niggling. Don't you say niggling in, in British English? A niggling thought. And that is when it comes to minor cities like, you know, like flying through the sky and walking through walls and through mountains and walking on water, going underwater, multiplying yourself, uh, having your body blaze on fire, that sounds all quite plausible. That is, you know, if you've achieved the jhana and you've mastered those nimittas, those signs, those archetypal forms from the, from the form realm, if the whole theory is correct. Theory very resonant with Jung and with Wolfgang Pauli, two brilliant minds, and so wonderful they came, to the, came together from these two complementary disciplines. Because Wolfgang Pauli, just take my word for it, he was world class. He was brilliant, terrifyingly brilliant. He really terrified his peers. He was so smart. I'm, I'm serious. And so, if they're right, and this is a testable hypothesis, they didn't have a way of testing, but through this contemplative practice, it is possible. That is plausible. The notion that the Buddha was psychotic just strikes me as in, impossible. That a psychotic man would have that impact on all of Asia and be revered by so many people, you know, to, it just, made, that just that's impossible. We, have, we recognize psychotic people when they see him. He's not one of them. He seems to be on the other end of the spectrum. But there's a niggling thought and that is, okay, all of those, you, you can go through the list, all of those kind of things. But the niggling thought is, Okay, you've achieved the fourth jhana. But how do you caress the sun? <laughs> I mean, really? You've really got a $93, million, a 93 million mile arm that goes out and strokes nuclear hydrogen explosions? I mean, I don't see how that works. And for that matter, even a 237,000 mile Arm reaching up to stroke a very cold planet, would you get frostbite if you tried to stroke the moon? I mean, on the s- surface, I think it's very hot. So you'd either get singed or you'd get frozen if you reached around and kind of caress you know, like cuddling, you know, reaching around and cuddling from the back, from the dark side. It would be freezing back <coughs> there. So your front part of your arm would get burned and the last part would get frostbite. I mean, it would be really messy. So how does that work? Or do we just say, oh, he didn't mean that part? But it keeps on coming up. It's in the Pali Canon. There it is in in the Prajapanamita. Here now, 17th century, is Kamachame just citing that? Yeah, that happens. How is that possible? So I'm not satisfied yet. I'm quite satisfied, but not satisfied completely. Not with those two things. How do you caress the sun and the moon? Well, let's take a step back. We're not going to leave that one. But. I love surprising you, with good surprises. And I'm going to cite now just a short passage from a text that a lot of you have had the teachings on. The Foolish Dharma of an Idiot Clothed in Mud and Feathers by Dujum Lingba. This will be a familiar passage, it's very important. I'm going to read it briefly, but it's right to the point. So, but remember where we just were. That is, in, the, in this morning, because there's a total continuity here. You remember? Of... Among the various signs, the signs, the archetypal signs of earth, water, fire, air, and so forth, that the sign that trumps them all, the tru- the, while they're all derivative, the one that is primary, the one that is the key to all the key, the key that opens all the locks, is the sign of the mind. That's the primary one, remember? And then Dhammapada, all phenomena issue forth from the mind, right? And so forth. Dan- and then the Radha Sutra saying the primacy of the mind, the mind, the mind, the mind. Focus there, and there will be no detours, there will be no roundabouts, making an absolute direct path, right? It doesn't get any more direct than that. So we've settled here, temporarily, tentatively, at least a working hypothesis, on the primacy of the mind. Fathom this, he said, if one who comprehends the mind comprehends all things, that's a very large statement. So here we have from the foolish dharma of an idiot clothed in mud and feathers, uh, an actual composition by Dujum Lingma in his later years when he's drawing on the full wealth of his wisdom. And he writes to summarize, this is right towards the beginning of the text. To summarize, novices enter the authentic path. Ding 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 ding. Big alert. This is the this is the important part, right? You're not just practicing dharma doing a three year retreat or one month or twelve-year retreat. You're actually entering a path. Okay. Novices enter the authentic path. By means of investigation and familiarization, so not just by spacing out, not just by sitting with open presence or just awareness or awareness. They actually they set out by means of investigation and familiarization. So first go. So that's how it happens. That's how you really launch. So first go to a place of solitude, sit on a comfortable cushion, and generate bodhicitta, the aspiration to achieve perfect enlightenment. With sincere devotion, offer prayers of supplication to your guru, and take the four empowerments. You imagine your guru, whether in the human form or human form like that of your own guru, like His the Dalai Lama, or wherever it may be, or more archetypal form, the archetypal form of Padmasambhava or Avalokiteshvara. You imagine your guru in the space in front of you, and then one by one, from the om at the crown, you imagine white rays flowing to the om at your crown dissolving into merging, purifying your body. From the red A at the Guru's throat, red light merges, flows like a cascade into the red A at your throat, purifying your speech, permeating your whole being. From the blue HUNG at the Guru's heart, indigo light flows from the the HUNG at your heart, purifying mind. And then all three simultaneously, white, red, blue, simultaneously, blessing these three chakras, Purifying, sowing the seeds of Namanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dhammakaya, Svabhavakaya. So you take form power. That's how you do it. Then identify the primacy of the mind among the body, speech, and mind, dispelling any uncertainty about this point. So if you're coming in as a materialist, that may, t- may take a while. That's okay. But you can't proceed any further if you materialist. It's not like you're a bad person. It's just that that will block you completely on this path. So we shouldn't fool ourselves. You can have a really nice life. You can have a virtuous life. You can have a good rebirth. There's no threat here. But if you want to follow this path, you have to recognize something is already true. And that's among body, speech, and mind. Mind is primary. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's like the inverse square law of gravity. That's the way it is. So you don't have to believe anything I say. But it's still the way it is. And so you must recognize this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mind is primary. Then, carefully investigate this so-called mind. Every word here is really carefully chosen. This so-called mind, that which we call mind. So don't ask, what what do the Buddha say about mind? What's the Prasangaka Madhyamaka view of mind? What's Dzogchen view? Never mind that. You're using the word mind in your own language. And when you think mind, when you experience your mind, there's a referent for that word. Because you're not just saying something that doesn't mean anything. Blah, blah, blah. That doesn't have any referent. But when you, in your own language, in your own thoughts, from your own perspective, when you think mind, that word has a, pers- has a referent. So now examine the referent of the word. According to you, you, your view. We're not asking you to conform to a Buddhist definition. But when you think mind, it's not a meaningless term. You know what it means. It refers to something. And so, in your view, what does it refer to? Identify the referent of the mind. And then, that's why so-called mind. That which you call the mind, identify the referent. Right? So when I say, is there somebody here named Jeffrey? Yes, there is. And then I point, there he is. There's the referent. Here's a person. Jeffrey is just a word. It's just a name. It's, It's a sound. But it's a meaningful sound. And it refers to Jeffrey. Right? He's the referent. So I got that one. Okay? Similarly, Jeffrey, Lynn, Claudio, whoever it may be. It's just a noise, just an empty, empty sound. But we imbue it with meaning, and it has a referent. Mind is just blur; It's just noise. It has a referent. Examine, identify the referent, as you understand it. And then, then carefully investigate this so-called mind in terms of its initial place of origin. Not mind as a generic concept. So this is not a, f- a, a fest of philosophical thinking. but any mental event. So, like Michelle, I look into her face, and I say, do I see her body? Yes, I do. Is Michelle's face her body? No, it isn't. But it's enough. To see Michelle's face is enough to see Michelle's body, and it's also enough to see see Michelle. Do I see Michelle? Yes, I do. There's no debate on that point. Yes, I do. Do I see all of her? No. Do I see all of her body? No, no need. I see her face, that's enough. So you don't have to see all your mind. You don't have to see it generic. All you have to do is find the face and one thought will do one face will do if she had a very distinctive hand maybe there'd be a tattoo on her hand and I reckon oh yes I just saw I just saw Michelle she just went around the corner but I saw her hand I, I saw her yes did you see her yeah I just went around the corner because I saw a distinctive characteristic then I know oh that's, that's, that's that was her it was a tattoo on her, on her hand but it's enough right so any thought, any emotion, any memory, whatever comes up, that's enough, that's enough. And then examine, examine its initial place of origin, where does it come from, its location in the interim, that is, after it's arisen and before it departs, where is it, while it's there, where is it, and its final destination. This is classic, classic, classic. Vipassana in the Mahamudra and tradition. Jungne dosum, examine the origin, location, and destination of mind analysis of these points reveals the emptiness of origin location and destination he just gave away the plot (laughs) (laughs) but that's what you find then investigate the mind as the agent that now goes deeper this is really dense really really dense then investigate the mind as the agent the mind that does things the agent that conjures up all kinds of thoughts. What is this? This mind is very active. The mind is actually the thing that produces the placebo effect. Everybody knows that. We fool ourselves at it, you know, with a slate of hand, as if somebody is fooled. Oh, except people do get fooled. It's amazing. But the, it's a mind effect, of course, because we have faith, expectation, desire, belief, trust. And then, lo and behold, the mind effect occurs. Not always, but frequently. The mind's doing that, right? The mind is doing that. By the power of your faith, expectation, what have you. It's a mind effect. You don't want to acknowledge that if you think the mind is just brain function. But there it is. They're just in denial. And so there it is. The mind is an agent. The mind does things. The mind does things, all kinds of things. Drives us crazy on occasion. Makes us delighted on occasion. Bores us to death on occasion. Irritates us and frustrates us. Does any of this ring a bell? So the mind does stuff, and the mind thinks. The mind churns out compulsively, Pfft, cascading waterfall. So what is this entity, this mind? Investigate the mind as the agent that conjures up all kinds of thoughts, seeking out its shape, color, and form, as well as its source, beginning and end, and whether it really exists or is totally non-existent. By doing so, once you have determined with confidence that it cannot be established in any way at all, when you have established that it cannot be determined as being really existent, and it cannot be determined as being totally non-existent, and you really can't identify its shape, color, or form, you can't really identify its source, beginning, or end, you've entered the path. Once you've determined with confidence that it cannot be established in any way at all, it doesn't fit into any of these conceptual categories of yours, really, you've entered the path. So he, he sets that out. That was very condensed. He does that more elaborately in the Vajra Essence and so on, but this is really very compact. And he does this before he gives the instructions of taking the mind as the path. It's quite interesting. It's a a quite brilliant strategy. Because after that comes taking the mind as the path, after that comes taking Dhammata as the path, really investigating the nature of emptiness. After that comes taking Rigpa as path. After that comes the Tutgal, culminating face of Dzogchen. After that comes Rainbow Body. After that is, for as long as space remains, you've got a job. And so... That's from Dzogchen. That's quintessential Dzogchen. Really powerful Dzogchen. So we just touched the sky. Okay? And now let's go back to the ground. Back to the Pali Canon. You have no idea what's coming up. It's very cool. You ready? Here's from the Pali Canon. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Kaya, So, within the Pali canon. But it's a story not about the Buddha, but about a Bikuni, a fully ordained nun. So, at Savati, now the bhikkhuni, Vajira. I love this. <laughs> Vajira is, is Pali for Vajra, in the feminine. Okay? So she's a, she's a Shravaka nun, an actual disciple of the Buddha. And her name is Vajra. Or, how do we say? She Vajra? I don't know. <laughs> but Vajira, Vajira makes her female. Of course she's female. She's a Bhikkhuni, or Bhik- in Sanskrit, Bhushuni. So the Bhikshuni, I'm going to do Sanskrit, uh, Pali it is. The Bhikkhuni Va- Vajira, having, d- having robed herself and taken her bowl, an upper robe, entered Savati before noon, to collect food she went on her alms round having wandered through Zavati and returned after her meal she entered the Anda grove and sat down at the foot of a certain tree to rest during the heat of the midday (laughs) isn't it fun? you have no idea what's going to happen it's really cool (laughs) then Mara Mara the evil one approached the Bhikkhuni Virgira and, desiring to cause fear and consternation, to make her hair stand on end and cause her to fall away from concentration of the mind, addressed her with this verse. By whom was this being made? This being, this entity, this being. By whom was this being made? He's referring to her. Where is the maker of the being? This being here. From where does a being arise? Where as a being cease. Anything sound familiar? As we touch the earth and the sky? Then, Bikuni Vajira thought, Who is this human or non-human being who speaks this verse? And then she thought, It's Mara, the evil one, desiring to cause me fear and consternation to make my hair stand on end, and cause me to fall away from concentration of mind. So the bikuni Vajira, realizing that it was Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verse. So this is in English, so it's in prose, but in, in Pali it's in verse, you know, metered verse. So she, he gave her a little poetic verse, and she's going to flash right back. It's kind of like rapping. <laughs> a little bit. A being, why seize upon this word? A wrong view, Mara surely has. She sounds like Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) A wrong (laughs) wrong. (laughs) view, Mara surely has. But she's right. A mere heap of conditions, this, where no being can be found. And when with all its parts assembled, Chariot is the word then used. So when the aggregates exist, one speaks of being in quotation mark, by convention. It is just suffering that arises, suffering that stays and suffering disappears. Nothing but suffering arises, suffering ceases, and nothing else. And Mara the evil one thinking The Bikuni Vajira recognized me vanished away, grieved and dejected. Nothing like a good story. Mm-hmm. Really packed. We could spend the next forty-five minutes on this one. We won't, but you'll have it with the source. It's matter th- th- coming like that. It really seems to be in this context like a an impos- a personification of afflictive uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? There she was. Concentration of mind. She was just finished her alms round. She's resting and she's practicing non-stop. Right? She's not just waiting for a cushion. just resting, but no, she's not just spacing out. She's now in samadhi. And then afflictive uncertainty comes up. Personified as mara. And then assaults her, trying to unsettle her, throw her off. Cause her to doubt her own practice, be uncertain. And you can read read this again at your leisure. But then, rather than cringing, running away, or saying, I need a break, she just turns her direction right to Mata, confronts mano a mano, you know, face to face, and said, Paul. Okay. Having recognized, she first recognized, okay, she recognized what Mata is. She recognized what's going on there. And then she recognized, she, she, goes, she goes on a counterattack. She doesn't say, I'm not quite sure, I haven't thought about it. No, no. She poof, right back, counter-attack. Attack, counter-attack. She confronts him, because I think it's a him, it's a mara. And she says, a being, you know, like that. And then she goes right back. Why seize upon this word? Why grasp to the word? Why grasp the noise that which you've superimposed upon experience? You have a wrong view. A mere heap of conditions, this. She's this. A a mere heap of conditions, this. Where no being can be found. The next part, petite. So this is very familiar, right? Very familiar. That these are just skandhas. They're simply arising. They're simply events. There's no being there. There's no person that owns them. There's no core. There's no ego. There's no... Nothing like that. But then she goes, she leaps out of that. And she says, as when all its parts assembled, chariot, in quotation marks. Chariot is the word then used. I want to pause there just briefly. When all, the, all its parts are assembled. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Assemble all the parts and we call it a chariot. When are all the parts assembled? At what point? At what point is it ready? At what point is it a chariot that you can just call it what it already is? How many wheels does a chariot need? We think four. But wait a minute, aren't there three, three, three wheel chariots? What's wrong with that? How about two wheel chariots? Sure. How about one wheel chariots? I don't see a problem. Does it really need wheels? how many parts need to be assembled? Is a broken chariot a chariot? If you, have a, if you had a four-wheeled chariot, but one of the wheels fell off, but it's still able to creak down the road, is it still a chariot? I think we, it is. It, we call it a broken chariot. But it still functions. What if you... If all the wheels broke, and the chariot is bogged down, and all the wheels broke, it's still a chariot, isn't it? It's a broken chariot. Fix my chariot, hey chariot chariot service man, you know, call nine one one. My chariot's broken. Fix the wheels. When is it that all the parts are assembled, so that it's time you can say it now? Chariot. Origin. What's the origin, chariot? Now chariots don't last forever. There are no eternal chariots. You have a chariot for a while. At some point, you know you have a chariot. It's like a car or whatever. And at some point later on, you don't. It got totaled. It got burnt. It got so damaged. It got chopped up and used for kindling. It was transformed into a tricycle. But at some point, it's no longer a chariot, right? I mean, there just aren't any eternal chariots. So exactly when did the chariot cease to exist? How damaged did it need to be? before it objectively stopped being a chariot. Before it's totaled. My stepdaughter's car got totaled. It was rammed from behind. It was her previous car. But she still drove her for thousands and thousands of miles. She got the insurance money because it was somebody else's fault so she got the full value of the vehicle. And then she drove her for thousands of miles afterwards. (laughs) Because it still drove, you know. But technically, it was totaled. So was she driving a non-car or a car? <laughs> was she just floating down the highway? It's much more, you know, it's cheaper on the gas if there's no car at all. But it seems like a total car is still a car because she still drove it. I had a, we, my wife and I bought a used Mercedes-Benz. It's the biggest lemon of a car we ever bought. And after a while, it was basically worth a big paperweight. That is, it, was just, it just stopped working. <laughs> and they said it will cost you much more to fix the car than the car is worth, so you want to just get rid of it. And I said, yeah, sure. So they gave us a thousand dollars for a dead car. But was it a car? Because they weren't going to fix it either. They were just going to dismantle it and sell it off piece by piece. So when did it stop being a car? When they took the doors off and the wheels off and they sold the radio and they sold the seats and the when did it stop being a car? At what point? So we see, we think rather nonchalantly when the parts were all assembled, ch- the word chariot is used. Yeah, but exactly when does a chariot come into existence? And when does it stop being in existence? When, does it, when is there no longer a chariot there? That is, clearly, when there are a lot of parts there, there's not a, if you have a chariot kit, you know, just a whole bunch of pieces in a box. Nobody says, oh, uh, let's, let's ride, ride the chariot to town. It's in a box. So nobody thinks that's a chariot. It has the potential to become a chariot if you assemble it properly. It's not a chariot. But it may be sooner or later, but when? And then when does it stop being a chariot? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Okay? Thank you, Vajira. Good Good job. And now we have, we return to Chariot, but this time in Arhat. In Arhat, Arhat, Nagasena. In the first, as far as I know, the first East-West dialogue. Between a major, I'm serious, between a, a formidable representative, like his Holy Dalai Lama, a formidable representative of Buddhism coming to the West. Happened the first time in 1979 for him to teach. It was one of the, it was the biggest honor of my life. I served as his interpreter. When he gave his first teachings in the West in Switzerland, I'm just giving that as an example. But he was a, a, a marvelous representative of this whole tradition. Nagasena was an Arhat. He was a marvelous representative of the Buddha Dharma, and this is like you know, two thousand years ago. And he met with a king. He was actually Greek heritage, one of the leftovers from Alexander the Great's invasion of India. He was a governor. And the king invited him to his court, and then he had a whole bunch of questions. He didn't come to Nagasena to study his brain or his behavior. (laughs) Or just to subjugate him, (laughs) make him a slave, or a secretary. He actually thought he was a wise man, and asking questions to learn from him. Fancy that. And so, they had a conversation. It's one of the most famous conversations in all of Buddhist literature from the Pali. Again, it's the Pali canon. And so here it is from the uh, Melinda Panya. The king's name in Pali was Melinda. In, San, in Greek, it was Menander. Menander, King Menander. So then the Venerable Nagasena spoke to Melinda, the king, as followers. So it wasn't just the king asking him questions. Sometimes Nagasena would flash back, just like Vajira. flashed back and interrogated Mara, put him on the spot, humiliated him. And he left dejected, right? Deject, what was it? Grieved and dejected. He was beaten by a woman. He must have been really humiliated. Okay, now it's Nagasena. So Nagasena Nagasena spoke to Melinda the king as follows. Your majesty, you're a delicate prince, an exceedingly delicate prince. And if your majesty, you walk in the middle of day on the hot sandy ground and you tread on rough grit, gravel and sand. Your feet become sore, your body tired, your mind is oppressed, and the body consciousness suffers. Only a Buddhist would say that. <laughs> "Pray, did you come afoot or riding?" <laughs> so he's met, he's met this king, right? He just said, Where, "Where'd you come from? How do you get here?" Right? So he starts. The, it's an interesting way to start the conversation. Okay. And so, "Pray, did you come afoot or riding?" The king replies, "Bante, I do not go afoot." <laughs> <laughs> I came in a chariot. <laughs> Your Majesty, if you came in a chariot, declare to me the chariot. Pray, Your Majesty. Is the pole the chariot? Right. Is that the chariot? Nay, verily, Bante. They spoke funny back then. <laughs> Or at least the translators translated it funny. I don't know. I don't know anybody that says "nay, verily." Anybody, but you got the message. It's cute, okay? But you know exactly what he's saying. "Nay, verily, bante," is the axle the chariot? "Nay, verily, bante," are the wheels the chariot? I think you know what's coming. <laughs> are the wheels the chariot? "Nay, verily, bante," is the chariot body the chariot? "Nay, verily, bante." The king is very patient, obviously. Is the banner staff the chariot? Nay, verily, bante. Is the yoke the chariot? Nay, verily, bante. Are the reins the chariot? Nay, verily, bante. Is the goading stick the chariot? (laughs) Verily, bante. Good. It took you a little while. (laughs) You you got it. (laughs) Pray, your Majesty, are pole, axle, wheels, chariot body, banner staff. Yoke, reins, and goad, unitedly the chariot. So one by one, no. But how about unitedly, the whole collection of all of them, right? Unitedly. The compilation, the aggregation. Are they unitedly the chariot? Nay, verily. Bante. Because if they were, of course, all you need would be just a, a, heap, a heap of them. You just throw in the wheels and the pole and, and just put it in a big mound and just the aggregates, you know, them, them all collected in one place, if that were a chariot, then you'd have a big heap of parts and you'd call that a chariot. Nancy says, nay, verily, No, it's not enough just to have them all in one place. Unified. Nay, verily, Is it, Is it, then, Your Majesty, something else besides pole, axle, wheels, chariot body, banner-staff, yoke, reins, and goad, which is the chariot? So you're saying none of the individual parts, not all of the parts collectively. So is the chariot something other than all the parts? Nay, verily, Bhante. Your Majesty, although I question you very closely, I failed to discover any chariot. (laughs) (laughs) So the king told him they didn't come on foot, he came in a chariot. And then this, this Arhat saying, where's the chariot? I don't see a chariot because we just went through every possibility piece by piece all of them collectively or apart from them and you're saying ne verile bante it was no across the boards if not among those three options none of the parts individually not all of them collectively and not apart from them where's your chariot? some other idea? Although I question you very carefully, I fail to discover any chariot. It doesn't seem to be findable. Verily now, Your Majesty, the word chariot is a mere empty sound. What chariot is there here? Your Majesty, you speak a falsehood, a lie. There is no chariot. Your Majesty, you're you're the chief king in all the continent of India. Of whom are you afraid that you speak a lie? Listen to me, my lords, ye 500 yonakas, and ye 80,000 priests. Melinda the king here says thus, I came in a chariot, and being requested, your majesty, if you came in a chariot, declare to me the chariot. He fails to produce any chariot. Now, really got chutzpah, right? <laughs> there's 80,000 people listening, and he's ridiculing the king, calling him on a carpet, and saying he's a big liar? This guy really had guts. But, of course, he's an arhat. Arhats have guts. <laughs> it's the advantage of being an arhat. So, he says thus, I came in a chariot and being requested, Your Majesty, if you came in a chariot, declare to me the chariot. He fails to produce any chariot. Is it possible, pray, for me to assent to what he says? How can I agree with what he said? He said he came in a chariot, And when I ask him, where's the chariot, he says, no God. This is interesting, eh? Because those of you who studied Madhyamaka, you've just seen the classic reasonings to demonstrate the lack of inherent nature of all phenomena. And he chose a chariot. So did Chantikirti, didn't he? This Pali canon. So generally speaking, the uh, Theravada tradition... The Theravada term- 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 interpretation of the Pali Canon is straightforward metaphysical realism. The self, the agent, the I, this person, is not findable under analysis, is not to be found among the five skandhas, is not identified with any of them individually or all of them collectively, and is nowhere to be found and does not exist outside of the context of the five skandhas, or simply some- some say, say the body-mind complex. Classic reasoning classic Pali-canon reasoning, that the five skandhas are empty of self, there is nothing in them that is the self, they are not self, and they're devoid of self. It doesn't say, and the Buddha never said, the self doesn't exist, people don't exist, I, didn't ex- I don't exist, but he did say, none of the skandhas are the self, and the skandhas are empty of the self. That he did say. And that's usually where it ends in the Pali-canon while assuming that the five skandhas, of course, they're real, suffering really arises, suffering really ceases, that's real. It's just the self that is nowhere to be found under analysis, that all phenomena are empty of self, individual self, self, the the self of a person, right? But uh, Nagasena just blew the lid off of that. Because, of course, if this is going to be true for a chariot, it's going to be true for the Higgs boson, the elementary particle that gives mass to all the other particles in the universe, it's going to be true of the sun and the moon and everything else. There's nothing special about chariots. He didn't find a weak link, a pawn on the great chessboard of existence. It's as good as anything else. If the chariot cannot be found, nothing can be found. It's representative of everything other than self. And he just said, it's a mere convention. That's what he just said, right? Right? So he's calling into question here. Clear, I don't see how you can avoid this interpretation. That's straight Madhyamaka analysis. Really. Exactly. But at that time, there was no. The Nagarjuna hadn't come, come yet. It was not writing yet, as far as we know. And so it was an assault on metaphysical realism regarding all of reality and not just self as in personal identity. So Nagasena, Chandakirti, Nagarjuna, Tsongkhapa, and so forth, they were not the only ones to really critique and completely, how do you say, demolish the beliefs of metaphysical realism. I mentioned before Hilary Putnam, who defined metaphysical realism so succinctly and definitively. He's very, also, uh, he's high, he, was, he just, as I said, he passed away a month ago, but very highly regarded by his peers. Really, I mean, distinguished Harvard professor, uh, widely, widely respected among his peers. He was also a practicing Jew, which I found very interesting. His wife was also a formidable person. And I, presume, I think she's still alive, but she's also a philosopher in her own right So he writes, he is an American philosopher and mathematician and a computer scientist. And he comments here, and I give again the source. He said, elements of what we call language. Now here's his critique of metaphysical realism. It's the closest thing I've seen in Western philosophy to middle-wave view. 'Cause he completely demolishes metaphysical realism as untenable, indefensible, empty, false. Then he goes over to the other extreme of subjectivism, instrumentalism, constructivism, where you just don't make any comment about objective reality at all, or you deny it exists, that there's you know. He just identifies the two extremes of substantialism and basically cloaked nihilism. Right? And he demolishes them both. It's really quite brilliant. And he's quite readable also in the in the in the text that I've cited here. So he's finding what he calls a middle way, what he calls internal realism, or pragmatic realism. And he summarized it with a really cool phrase. He says, We are each of us, we are like characters in a novel, and we're writing the novel. So here's what he says, this is a quote. Elements of what we call language or mind penetrate so deeply into what we call reality, so-called reality, quotation marks. And this is again, this is really precise. Elements of what we call language in quotation marks, we call language or mind, we call mind, quotation marks, penetrate so deeply into what we call reality, again, quotient to quotation marks, the word, the sound, the noise that has a referent, language or mind penetrates so deeply into what we call reality that the very project of representing ourselves as being, in quotation marks, mappers of something language independent, language independent also in quotation marks, is fatally compromised from the very start. Now I'll read it without interrupting. It's really choice. Elements of what we call language or mind penetrate so deeply into what we call reality that the very project of representing ourselves as being mappers of something language-independent is fatally compromised from the, very from the very start. That is classic prasayaka, classic madhyamaka. By a person who didn't study Buddhism, as far as I know, he, relied, he looked to Kant, Wittgenstein, and William James That's his tripod. I find quite breathtaking. Brilliant. I wish I'd met him. Never had the chance. So there's from one of, I think, our finest 20th century philosophers, late 20th century philosophers, Hilary Putnam at Harvard, distinguished, very eminent philosopher and mathematician and computer scientist, so he really knew what to look into. And then we have one of the great founders, very famous uh, pioneer in the field of quantum mechanics, Werner Heisenberg, again a direct quote, everything has source. Here's what René Heisenberg says, as they were, as he and his colleagues, his, his mentor, Niels Bohr, his colleagues like Evan Schrodinger, Wolfgang Pauli, and so forth, as they were seeing the implications of quantum mechanics, one of them, I think it was Heisenberg, said, we feel like the very foundations beneath us are shaking. It was like an existential crisis. This was not an intellectual trick. This was not just a pastime, They're not just a profession. They had been, the 19th century physics was so embedded, so rooted, so comfortable, taking refuge in, really, and I mean existentially, taking refuge in the notion there's a real world out there, whether you believe in God or not, whatever. There's a real world out out there, and it's made of particles and fields and there's space and the time, and they're really out there. And we are mappers Of a reality that is independent of our language, independent of our systems of measurement, and we're closing in. And then quantum mechanics come and it just torpedoes this. Or it's like the Titanic just hitting that iceberg and just ripping the guts out of it. And you see, this baby's sinking, and there's nothing you can do about it, whether it's fast or slow, but this baby's going down. It cannot be salvaged, it's been ripped. Metaphysical realism was ripped. It was the iceberg for metaphysical realism. It hasn't sunk yet. That's why still people still believe in it. But it's actually it's already sunk. They just don't see it yet. And Werner Heisenberg knew this. He said, we have to remember that what we observe is not nature herself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. In other words, everything we know about Nature, the world, reality, everything, without exception. What we know is an answer to a question. An appearance arising to a system of measurement. It's not God speaking. It's not nature saying, here I am, or having no questions at all, just, here I am, and seeing her, it, as nature actually is. Nature is always arising relative to a question or a mode of observation, a system of measurement. We have no access to nature or anything else apart from having a question and having some mode of observation. And it always rises relative to the mode of observation, relative to the system of measurement, whether the system of measurement is vis- visual, visual perception or whether it's a large hadron super collider. It's always rising relative to your system of measurement. And if you say, yeah, but what the hell is going on independent of our system of measurement, well, he had a comment to that. He said, let us not attribute existence to that which is unknowable in principle. And what is going on out there, independent of all systems of measurement, independent of all observations and independent of all questions, what's really going on out there objectively, absolutely objectively, unknowable in principle. Because every time you pose a question, you just pose a question. Every time you make an observation, you just made an observation, and not from God's perspective, from your perspective, with your instrument. And it's always relative to, and you never escape that. So if you're asking what's out there prior to, independent of any question, any observation, you've just asked an unanswerable question. It's unanswerable in principle. Do not attribute existence to that which is unanswerable in principle. Bye-bye, universe. But we're so accustomed, we in the 21st century. I am. I was raised, you know, Western, total. We're so accustomed that there's one description of the universe. Unless you're, you know, you're living on some, you're you're Amish or something like that, and you simply ignore the entire 20th century and the last 400 years of science, and you just bury your head in your farm and believe that whatever's in the Bible is literally true, and about apparently 40% of Americans do that, and they still believe every word in the Bible is literal, or every word in some other sacred scripture is literal, whether it's the Abhidharma, whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's, you know, whatever, whatever. But you just say, I just don't want to deal with modernity. No thank you. My body's here, but my mind is out there. You can always do that. But then for people who are actually living in the 20th century, you look like an idiot. right? Like, like a joke. Like a joke. Like, you really think science came up with nothing, right? Nothing. 400 years, it came up with nothing. Really? You look like an idiot. But from this, for all of our schooling, if you go to any, almost really any university, even a Catholic university, you really get the idea there's only one story. There's only one story about the origins, I mean, something we take seriously that's based upon rigorous research and actually has consensual knowledge, practical benefits of one sort or another. There's only one story, right? And that's, it's a 13.8 billion year old universe and there's inflationary period and da 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 and here's the planet and here's elementary life and here's evolution. There's only one story and we've all learned that story. There's only one story. Philosophers don't have a story. They just have a lot of opinions and they don't agree. So, you know, we don't look to them. Religious people have too many stories and they all disagree with each other, so why could you take them seriously? And the scientists have a story that's based upon really rigorous research, spectacular technology, and for many, many people that's the only story that's taken seriously. And the other ones look like maybe very nice myths, or they look stupid but they just can't be taken seriously. Or they're just interesting ideas. Oh, okay, he, Hillary Putnam came up with that idea, Kant came up with that idea, but of course nobody agrees with anybody, so, so why should we, you know? Why should be taken seriously? At least the cosmologists have an enormous body of knowledge they agree on. The universe is not 18 billion years old, it's not six billion years old, and so forth. There's a lot they agree on, and not just because they're sheep, buying in, in unison. They have good research. So it looks like there's only one story, the true story, the real story. What really happened? And it was the Big Bang. It was matter, 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 matter. And then life. And then consciousness. And here we are. I think just gave the whole history of the universe. Right? That's the story we all get. Here's what William James has to say. Everyone, he says, is prone to claim that his conclusions are the only logical ones. And that they are necessities of universal reason they being all the while at bottom, accidents more or less of personal vision, which had far better be avowed as such. And that is reading the popular media, attending science classes, reading science textbooks, popular science and so forth. We're simply told, this is the way it is. This, this is, this is, this is, We are mappers on a language-independent reality, and this is what we've discovered. We're working out the fine details, but count on it. This is what really happened, right? They don't tell you what Heisenberg tells you. Because quantum mechanics is like a bomb that remains enclosed so the explosion can't reach the rest of the house. It's like a contained bomb waiting for the shell to break and blast out the whole house. But this is what really happened. They don't tell you that this is a picture that we've put together based upon questions that we posed using systems of measurement that we devised. And this is the story that comes out relevant relative to our systems of measurement and our questions. Oh, by the way, all of our questions were physical, and all of our systems of measurement measure only physical phenomena. They don't mention it. They just say, no, the, the, the universe is physical. Stupid. Because we discovered it. That's, that's the story. And we're sticking to it. It's so wonderful we're not living in the 19th century, because we'd really be at, a, at an impasse. There'd be no way to go. Any kind of constructive dialogue between not just you know stress reduction or whatever, but this worldview of the Buddha. That would just be like, "You're wrong, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh." There'd be no way to go, because they were all metaphysical realists back then. In the 19th century, virtually all of them. Relativity theory really shook it because it shows with rel- just special relativity, general relativity, just that, let alone quantum mechanics, that we speak. Remember the primary qualities of Descartes? Location, extension, mass, motion, and so forth. That's what's really out there, independent of any observer? Yeah, kinda. Except it's all relative to inertial frame of reference, in which case it's not really there, because it depends on what, what is your frame of reference. Are you accelerating? Are you moving near the speed of light? What is the frame of reference of that which you're observing? And how big it is, how long it lasts, how much mass it has, how much energy it has, its shape, all of that isn't an intrinsic property of the entity in and of itself. It may be how it is observed from its frame of reference, but if you're looking at it from another frame of reference, traveling near the speed of light or accelerating and so on, from your perspective, it will be different. It could be massively different. Even simultaneity is not absolutely real, because two events may be simultaneous from one frame of reference and not be simultaneous. It actually switch order from another frame of reference. So that always already is like, like having a stroke. Like, like metaphysical realism had a stroke with relativity theory. Like, I think I'm still here. I don't mean to ridicule anything here, but you know, it's like it has a stroke. Like, it's not dead, but it's like jittery, and then quantum mechanics come out, it has a big, massive stroke, hemorrhaging. It's finished. But they're containing it. They're containing it. They're propping it up like a, like a mummy. Well, who's saying this? It's just me, Then nothing. I have no significance. I have no authority. But Anton Seininger does. He's an icon. He's like, he's world-class. I have a good, real privilege of knowing him personally, but he's world-class. He discovered quantum teleportation, which is big. I, I'm just waiting for him to get the Nobel Prize for that. It was breathtaking. He's met with his home they had fascinating conversations. I got to be part of that conversation as interpreter. Here's what Enson Seiling has. I think it's probably safe to say he is the foremost experimental physicist working in the foundations of quantum mechanics. It's brilliant. Remember the name er- Erwin Schrödinger? He holds his chair at the uni- University of Vienna. So this is not an opinion on my part. It's not because I'm like him or whatever. He is really distinguished. Here's what Anton Seininger says, and I quote. One may be tempted to assume that whenever we ask questions of nature, of the world there outside, there is reality existing independently of what we can say about, of what can be said about it. We will now claim that such a position is void of any meaning. It is obvious that any property or feature of reality out there, quotation marks, can only be based on information we receive. There cannot be any statement whatsoever about the world or about reality that is not based on such information. Bear in mind that information is not equivalent to reality. Out there, the information refers to that reality, but not identical to. It therefore follows that the concept of a reality without at least the ability in principle to make statements about it, to obtain information about its features, is devoid of any possibility of confirmation or proof. So if there were an existing reality out there, in and of itself, objectively real, we'd never know about it. We'd make any statement about it, Whatever, there's a sun, really, really, absolutely, inherently, 93 million miles away? Yeah? Oh, yeah? Independent of all systems of measurement? Independent of information? Yeah? Prove it. Disprove it. And you'll find you can't do either. To make a statement about reality, independent of the information we have about the reality, is to make empty noise, meaningless statements, that are not worthy of any consideration, because you don't even need to refute them. They can't be refuted or confirmed. This implies that the distinction between information, that is knowledge, and reality is devoid of any meaning. Evidently, what we are talking about is again a unification of very different concepts. The the reader might recall that unification is one of the main themes of the development of modern science. Einstein's unification of matter and energy, they were thought to be quite distinct until that cute little equation, E equals mc squared unification. Space and time were thought to be quite distinct, totally distinct, until general relativity came along. Unification of space, time, and so forth. Unification is the drive of science. You'll want to read that a few times. You'll have it. John Archibald Archibald Wheeler, who died in 2008, ended up a very long life. He was 90 years old. He was at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, and Richard Feynman was at Caltech. These were the two big pillars of theoretical physics in the United States for the latter part of the 20th century. Two mighty lions at the gates of the Atlantic and the Pacific. Truly a great one. Again, it's not my opinion, it's true. Here's what he writes, and I quote, The universe consists of, in quotes, a strange loop in which physics gives rise to observers, and observers give rise to at least part of physics. Okay, physics gives rise to observers. He knows better than any of us here about the the story, and the details, and the the evidence behind the story, of a 13.8 billion year old universe in which consciousness, human beings, came along, at the very, very tail end, 200,000 years ago, with, you know, 13.8 billion years before us. Life came along only three and a half billion years ago on our planet. That's the only one we know about. So physics gave rise to observers. There was a Big Bang, There's inflationary period, formation of galaxies, formation of our planet, planetary system and sun, formation of single-celled organisms, evolution happened, and then observers happened. Some place along there, observers happened. Physics gave rise to observers, But now, he says, and this this is the strange loop. It's not complex, but it is subtle. Observers give rise to at least part of physics. That is, if there were no observers, there would be no physics. If there were no observers, there would be no information, because to have information, you have to have someone who's informed. To have information, you have to have somebody asking questions, who gets answers, who has information, and on the basis of the information, a story is made. It's a very good story. Very compelling story, but it's still a story based on information, and the information doesn't exist apart from those who are informed, and they're called observers. So, observers give rise to physics. No observer, there is no physics. No observer, there's no story. But if there's no physical universe, you don't have any observers. So, that would imply to me they're probably both empty. Because if you have two phenomena, reality and observers, Take away the observers, reality can no longer be posited as existent. But take away reality, the rest of reality and observers cannot be posited as existence. but they're different. But you take away, take away one, the other one immediately vanishes. Then it couldn't really have been there in the first place. It's like the triad of the informata, information, and the one who's informed. Informata, that about which we have information, right? Like Sebastian. Informat, something about we, which a person about whom we can have information. Good, true. How do we know about Sebastian? By information, we look at him, we interro- interrogate him, and so forth. But we have information. We can do background check. We did; otherwise, he wouldn't be here. <laughs> information about this guy. We, we, we have our file. But there has to be someone who's informed. If there's no one who's formed, there's no information. If there's no informata, if there's no one about whom we have information, there's no information. So we have a triad here, that about which there is information, the informata, the information, information flow, and the one who is informed. Take away one of those, the other two vanish immediately. If there's no one who's informed, there's no information. But if there's no information, there's nothing to be said about the informata. Take away the informata, there's no information about the informata, therefore there's no one that's informed about the informata. The other two vanish. Take away any one of, it's a tripod. Take away one, any one of the of the legs if the other two vanish immediately. Which means they couldn't have really been there in the first place. If you can take away the other two, if you take away one and the other two vanish immediately, they can't really be there. They can be there only nominally. But they can't really be there, otherwise they'd be untouched. You destroy one, the other would choose to be handing. Say, what about us? And they all "Yeah, you'd have to shoot them too. But they're vanished in a finger snap, just by one of them, and take away any one of the, and the other two vanish immediately. That means they can't be there at all, except for, in a manner of speaking, like chariot. This is the strange loop, that physics became, came before observers. But with no observers, there's no physics. And it's a loop, it's a strange loop, which would imply neither physics nor observers are inherently existent. Otherwise, one would really be there, independent of the other. Because it's not straightforward causality, like here's a seed and here's the tree. Take away the seed, no tree. No, it's take away the tree, there's no seed. The conventional view of the relationship between observers and the objective world is that matter yields information. This is the view of metaphysical realism, flat out. Matter yields information. There's a world out there of matter and it yields information when we make observations, measurements, it yields information. That's the conventional view. Well, you know it's coming. The conventional view of the relationship between observers and the objective world is that matter yields information, and information makes it possible for observers to be aware of matter by way of measurements, which could be de- depicted as follows. Matter gives rise to information, gives rise to observers. This is a paraphrase of Wheeler now, and I think it's by, uh, by Paul Davies, who is an authority on Wheeler. Wheeler, on the contrary, proposes that the presence of observers makes it possible for information to arise, for there is no information without someone who is informed. Thus, matter is a category constructed out of information. And Wheeler inverts the sequence. Observers give rise to information, gives rise to matter. Matter is derivative of information. It wasn't already there. And it has no existence independent of information about it. That's a paraphrase. I think it's actually my paraphrase, but you can see the source, you can see whether I screwed it up. Here's now a direct quote from Peter, from Wheeler. It is wrong to think of that past, that 13.8 billion year old past. It's wrong to think of the, that past as, in quotes, already existing in all detail, that it was already a done deal, it was already objectively real. It really happened and we're simply mapping what really happened. Whether it's the, the history of the universe or whether it's your own history. That past, whatever that past might be. It's wrong, he says, to think of that past as already existing. And all de- The past is theory. The past in quotation marks. They're using this a lot to show how language is embedded in reality. That's why they keep on using these quotation marks. The past is theory. The past has no existence except as it is recorded in the present. By deciding what questions our quantum registering equipment shall put in the present, we choose the quantum registering equipment, we choose the system measurement. By making that choice, by deciding what questions our quantum registering equipment shall put put in the present, the questions and the system measurement, we have an undeniable choice in what we have the right to say about the past. The past not just the present. The past arises relative to the questions we pose and the measurements we make. It's not already there. It rises relative to. And then a quote from my own book, Mind and the Balance, on this topic. Since the dawn of modern science, physicists have been trying to understand the evolution of the universe, of the universe bottom up, starting with the initial conditions. This is my paraphrase, but there's no me here. This is just straight telling what John Wheeler said. You can trust me on that, but check me and find out for yourself. Today, the beginning of the universe is conce- conceived in terms of the Big Bang. But Hawking, Stephen Hawking, and his colleague, Hertog, Tom- Thomas Hertog, Thomas Hawk- and Stephen Hawking is falling right in this vein, exactly this vein. Anton Seilinger, John Wheeler, now we have Stephen Hawking. We have some pretty celestial guys here, big shots. But Hawking and Hertog challenge this entire approach, declaring that like the surface of a sphere, our universe has our universe has no definable starting point, no defined initial state. And if you can't know the initial state of the universe, you can't take a bottom-up approach, working forward from the beginning. The only alternative is to take a top-down approach, starting from current observations and working backwards. There's no choice there. That's the only, cho- that's the only thing you can do. We can't send a, a measuring system back into the past. All of our measurements are measurements made in the present, and we, it's a top-down. We go from the present and then draw conclusions about yesterday and 13.8 billion years ago. But it's all relative to the measurements we make in the present. But how you work backwards depends entirely on the questions you ask, and the methods of inquiry you adopt in the present. According to Hawking, every possible aversion of a single universe, every possible version of a single universe exists simultaneously in a state of quantum superposition. And that is there are multiple, 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 unimaginable multiple, versions of the universe all in a superposition state, which means they're not actual, they're potential. When you choose to make a measurement You select from this range of possibilities a subset of histories that share the specific features measured. The history of the universe as you conceive of it is derived from that subset of histories. In other words, you choose your past. All of this is footnoted. All the sources are there. So if I made any mistake, you'll be able to find it. Because I've just reported it was there. There's really no interpretation from my side. Straight. So you have 24 hours to think about that. <laughs> and then we'll apply this back to the sun and the moon, etc. See where that takes us. Okay. Enjoy your day. If you get any sleep at all, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your day.